0: A guy tells a story about his friend. He went swimming in a large lake at dusk. He was paddling at a leisurely pace about 100 yards offshore. And all of a sudden, a freak evening fog rolled in across the water. Suddenly... He could see absolutely nothing, no horizon, no landmarks, no objects or lights on the shore. He was disorientated, he was confused, I would imagine he was becoming afraid. Because the fog diffused all the light, he could not even discern which direction the sun was setting. For 30 minutes, he said, my friend splashed around in panic. He would start off in one direction, lose confidence, and then turn 90 degrees to the right, didn't matter which direction. He was losing hope. He would stop and float, trying to conserve energy and concentrate on breathing slower. Then he would strike out again, blindly, of course, for he had lost all orientation. He was utterly lost until finally he heard voices calling from the shore and was able to guide himself by those sounds. Maybe we find ourselves in a similar situation. I know over the the past few years it feels like a, a fog has rolled in across this world, doesn't it? It's confusing, it's disorientating, it's fearful, it causes anxiety. Maybe you're experiencing this personally in your life here today. Maybe it's a fog of pain. Maybe it's a fog of loss. Maybe it's a fog of suffering. Maybe you're losing strength. You're tired of just treading water and you feel yourself sinking to the depths below. What do we do? What do we do in a situation like that? How do we find the strength and the motivation and the confidence to keep on swimming? How do we orientate ourselves Whose voice do we listen to so that we know we can make it safely back to shore? How do we know that we're going to be okay? I want to share a story with you about a man who had such a fog roll in upon him. And what guided, encouraged him, and gave him hope amid this fog. I'm sure that you and I all remember bad days, right? We've all had a day to 24-hour period where we're like, that was a bad day. Uh, I know that I've had a few bad days, um, but most of my bad days, and usually a lot of them, consist of bad drivers. So if I have a bad driver, which is every day in my life, I feel like no one else can drive on the face of this earth except for me. So that's my bad day. I go home And I complain about the little things. And and I realize that all in all, it really wasn't a bad day. But maybe, and possibly, probably, most of us have had a a really bad day, haven't we? A day where where we want to forget that day happened. Or a day that we wish we could go back in time and say, "I, I just wish that day never occurred. A day that seemed to turn into weeks Months and maybe even years where we're still reeling from the pain and the suffering and the loss. There was a guy not too too long ago. He was a Christian man. He had a bad day. This man loved the Lord with all of his heart. He loved the life that God had blessed him with. He wasn't just a churchgoer. He wasn't just a nominal Christian He was a faithful man who loved the Lord, who loved his family, and was faithful throughout all of it. He had a large family and he had prosperous living. He had lots of land with a variety of livestock and animals. God had blessed this individual. And in one day, in an instant, all of that changed, just like that. In one day... Some of his animals were stolen from him. Some of his animals were caught in a consuming fire and were killed. And in the process of those things, he lost all of his workers. So all of his financial stability, everything was just wiped out from him. But it didn't compare to what happened to him next. On that same day, his family, his his children, ten of them, all ten of his children were having a party in the same house and it just so happened that that house was in the path of a tornado killed instantly you would think at this point that this man would just forget about god say why am i serving you why am i being faithful but he didn't and you would think at this point that that god would say okay that's enough i'm going to relent but guess what it got worse Not shortly after this, this man was afflicted with a terrible disease. He was covered from head to toe with boils all over his body. I'm sure you know by now who I am talking about, don't you? I'm sure you heard of the man named Job. And I'm sure that you know Job's name is synonymous with suffering, with pain, with despair. But his name is also synonymous with two other words, patience and a much, much more important word, hope, hope. You can turn to Job chapter 19 if you're following along in your Bibles, but if not, uh, I'll, I'll read it for us. And the reason that I do all this, the reason why I set this context is because it is absolutely important to understand something that it is in the very thickness of this fog that Job says what we are about to read today. Starting at verse 23 through 24, we're going to read this first part here, Job chapter 19. Oh, that my words were written... Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Again, uh, in the context, it's real important because words are said by people who are experiencing things. Uh, The words in the Bible, we sometimes can pull these words out of a Bible, and we don't understand uh, the position or what that person is experiencing as they say these very words. And if you go right before this, we see that Job seems to be at his lowest point. This guy is in utter despair. Everything and everyone seems to be against him. As a matter of fact, he even says that his very breath, his very breath is offensive to his wife. His friends have turned against him. As a matter of fact, his friends were sympathetic to his suffering at first. So this guy's lost everything. He's in financial ruin and he's in physical ruin. He's in physical pain. He turns to his wife and his wife says, look, you need to forget about God and die. Just forget all of this. Why are you continuing? And his friends, they were sympathetic at first, but then they do what? They blame him for his suffering. God's punishing you, you're a sinner, and that's only making his pain worse. He says to them just a few verses earlier, "'Pity me, pity me, oh my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does?' Are you not satisfied with my flesh? This guy, from head to toe, is covered in a sickness. He has lost absolutely everything, but he is absolutely confident in what he is about to say. This first statement that Job makes is a statement in confidence about the statement that he's going to say right after this. He has an unwavering confidence in what he says next. How many of us can say that? How many of us, when we're, I don't know if, I hope none of you have experienced anything like this, but this guy's got it really, really bad, doesn't he? And how many of us can can experience something like this in life and be utter confident in a truth? Because he's so confident, he basically says, mark my words in the positive sense. Mark my words what I am about to say, and it's said in the context of pain, suffering, and despair. It's one thing for me up here, and one of the hardest things of preaching truths like this number one is i don't I don't always apply everything that I'm preaching perfectly, right I struggle and I'm like, Lord, how can I how can I say these things uh, to individuals where I struggle in this area? And that's really, really hard. The other thing that's really, really hard is to preach truths like this from the comfort of this pulpit. I I woke up this morning, I I got my cup of coffee, right? I I came to church early in my, my nice little comfortable car, Right? I got out into my, and went into my office, which was climate controlled. I can adjust that temperature, and I can make it just feel just right. I, I put it up to like 71. The, the, Mark Williams hates that because it's like all that money just going out window. I like things really comfortable. I just crank that puppy right up. I'm like, my office, people come in, they're like, what's going on in here? You know, are you are you doing penance or something for sins? <laughs> But I do that, right, and I, can, and I come here and we're comfortable, we're in our chairs. So when I preach something like, you know, for me to live is Christ, but to die is, is gain, right? I say that from the comfort of this pulpit. When it was said from the depths of a prison... And when we we understand when someone is saying those things in that context, what they are experiencing, don't they mean that much more? It reveals their heart. Job is about to make a statement. It's a statement of hope. But I just want you to see that we're in chapter 19. Yes, he is confident in what he is about to say, But guess what? Job did not get there quickly, did he? This is the middle of the book, basically, almost. And and I think what Job is about to say is really the climax. And what Job is about to say is what is keeping him grounded throughout all of this suffering. It's the key verse of the book of Job. But he doesn't get there right away. He doesn't start here. He, Job goes up and down, hope and despair, hope and despair, hope and despair, but this is where he ends up. This is where he ends up. And what does he say? How, how do I know that Job is confident in what he's about to say? It's because he says he wants these words to be remembered. Remember what I'm about to say, because mark my words, they're going to come true. Mark my words, this is the hope that I have. He wants them engraved in a rock. And not only does Job want them remembered, God wants them remembered too because God honors this request. And even though it could be possible that he's alluding to the entire words of his book, I I definitely think within the the given context, he is talking about what he is about to say next. Engrave these words In a rock, remember this on the day that I am vindicated and they come true. It's even more fascinating when we think about when the book of Job was written. Because even though it's it falls after Esther and before Psalms, does anyone know when Job was written? Yeah, so it was the first book. It was the... Actually, first book, many, many people, and I would agree with it, I think it's the first book ever written, even though uh, the events of Genesis occur beforehand. Uh, Job probably falls after the flood, but before the call of Abraham. That makes me wonder something. Because after the flood, and after all that despair, after all that death, after all that destruction, this happens, and God wants humanity to realize something. there's hope. Even in the darkest pits of suffering and despair, there's hope for humanity. What are the words that he wants us to remember? Verses 25 through 27, listen to what Job says. As for me, as for me, I know something. I believe something. I am holding on to something. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will take His stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh... I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another, my heart faints within me. Before we get into these words, I want to I share with you a, another man's words that he wrote uh, before he died. Here it is. I'm dead. And this is my last post to my blog. Those are the first words of the final blog post written by Derek Miller at www.penmachine.com. The second paragraph includes the blogger's autobiography in just two sentences. I was born on June 30th, 1969 in Vancouver, Canada. And I died in Burnaby on May 3, 2011, age 41, of complications from stage 4 colorectal cancer. We all knew this was coming. Miller had been battling the cancer for four years at the time of his death, and he asked a friend to post his final words on the blog that had become a public record of his struggle. The style of Miller's entire blog is open, honest, and he paints the story of his final months with a boldness that is sometimes shocking, sometimes warm, sometimes funny, and oftentimes deeply sad. He asks his friends to bring him cans of Diet Cherry Coke and Easy Cheese, for example, and adds... If you say those things are horrible food-like substances that will give me cancer, I'll just laugh. He starts another post this way. I'm at the point with my cancer that the car has finally bumped down off the pavement and we're driving on the gravel now. What I mean is the end of the road is somewhere up ahead, not too far. His final entry... Opens a window inside of a man who expects absolutely nothing to happen when he dies. He says this I haven't gone to a better place or a worse one. I haven't gone to any place. Derek doesn't exist anymore. As soon as my body stopped functioning and the neurons in my brain ceased firing, I made a remarkable transformation from a living organism to a corpse, like a flower or a mouse that didn't make it through a particularly frosty night. His final words were for his wife. I loved you deeply, I loved you, I loved you, I loved you. All of those falling in the past tense. Folks, if this is it, if Mark is just a bunch of neurons bunch of molecules, a bunch of cells, and when I shed, shed this skin, if I seek to exist, what on earth is the point? Why bother? All of you can just go home right now. If this is the end, if we have no hope after life, who cares? Who cares? What's the point? What's the purpose? If this is it, then we should listen to the apostle Paul and all of us get drunk and eat a bunch of food cuz tomorrow we cease to exist. We die. Compare these final words and this it's a sad sad blog, isn't it? Terrible. Compare these words with what Job says. Hey, though my world is crashing in around me, though I can't make sense of suffering and pain, though my family is gone, my wife has turned from me, my friends have forgotten me, I know something, I know someone is for me, my Redeemer lives. And because He lives, I can live in hope now. And because He lives, after my skin is gone, I'm not ceasing to exist. That's when he says this, the pit of his despair. He clings to the hope of someone who can save his soul and resurrect his body. Is it a hope in mankind? No. Is it a hope in his friends? He's lost that. Is he, is he girding himself up, picking himself up by his spiritual bootstraps? No. Is it a hope in science? It's the hope in a person. And it's a hope in a person that's alive. Even though everything and everyone is against him, he knows someone is for him. This person is alive and Job knows him personally. As for me, as for me, guess what? This is is the truth. And you can mark my words. Because this guy that I see in the future, this man is going to do exactly what I said he's going to do. And we see this Redeemer and this redemption in in two ways, really. First is vindication. Job has been accused by his friends of sin. They're saying, hey, bud, you're suffering now because of your sin. Repent of your sin and then you're going to be okay. Now, Job isn't sinless. And there's times when throughout the book where Job is like, you know, he's, I'm like, wow, he's really questioning God. But in all of it, it says Job doesn't sin against God. And we know from the perspective, because the beginning of the book tells us, it's actually Job's faithfulness that brings him into this situation. He's being faithful, So there's a vindication from sin that we can expect in this Redeemer. Second, the vindication of sin is connected to His bodily redemption. Because He's suffering in the flesh, and they're saying He's suffering because of sin, His redeemed body reflects the fact that He is vindicated from that sin. That's exactly what this Redeemer is going to do. And many, many commentators uh, over the years, uh, over periods of years have debated over what he's talking about in these verses, if he's talking about a a physical resurrection. And I think he has to be. Notice what he's saying here, Uh, especially because of the two words, skin and flesh. What's he say? After my skin is destroyed in my skin or in my flesh, I will do what? I will see him. I will see him with my own two eyes. He'll see him with his own two eyes then in physically resurrected new eyes because he sees him with the eyes of faith now. That's how Job is making it through this fog. He has his eyes on his Redeemer. And he knows even if his flesh is destroyed, he will continue to live. And it is that hope that keeps him living now. He reinforces it with the next line. My eyes, my new eyes, I will behold this man and nobody else. Folks, this Redeemer is our only hope in life. This one. Right here, who Job is talking about. Job is in a dungeon of suffering, pain, confusion, anxiety. But he fixes his eyes on this light that's shining through a keyhole, revealing a shadowy figure in the future who is going to redeem him. An individual that will save him. An individual that is for him. An individual that will vindicate him. and An individual that will resurrect him. It's in this person that is alive that he finds his greatest hope. Folks, who Job sees through this keyhole, you and I get to see through an empty tomb. He is Alive. Listen to what the angels said to the two women who came. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. That's who Job sees. And you and I get to see it in a very, very more, much more clearer picture, don't we? And the individual that Job sees through this little, little keyhole the disciples saw and they were able to touch John tells us, dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be, what Job is talking about, has not been made known. But we know that when Christ, our Redeemer, appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him, just like Job says, as He is. Because He lives now you and I can live through the pain. Because he lives, you and I can live through suffering. Because he lives, you and I can live with purpose. Because he lives, you and I can live with understanding. And because he lives, you and I can live with hope. We can live with hope in this life and we can live with hope knowing we'll live in the next. When does Job say this? Listen to the final part of that verse. My heart faints within me. He says this as his heart is dying, but his hope is very, very, very much alive, isn't it? The key to our endurance, the key to life, the key to purpose The key to understanding, the key to eternity, is trusting in the one who holds those keys. Listen to what Jesus says to John. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and ever. And guess what? I hold something in my hands. And if you trust in me, if you see me, just like Job saw me through the eyes of faith, these things won't get a hold of you. That's the key. As for Job, he knows something. He knows his Redeemer lives. What about You, as for you, are you going under? Confused? Suffering? Wondering what all of this is about? Listen to his voice. And if you do that, I found the perfect stone that these words can be engraved upon. You can engrave them on, that, on your stone and you can engrave them on the stones of all of those who saw their Redeemer from afar. Engrave them right here. And you can let your friends know, hey, when I die, don't you dare look for me here because I'm not going to be there because he wasn't. I'm going to be looking at someone with my eyes, and those eyes will never, ever, ever be tear-filled again. I know I will live because I know my Redeemer lives.